Hello, and welcome back to The Bench, a podcast where I discuss prominent international and UK legal cases, some of which you've heard about and some you might not have. On today's episode, I brought on a special guest, Eve Maxwell, to talk about the prominent defamation case brought against Elon Musk in the middle of 2018. Eve, welcome to The Bench. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. Eve, if you cast your mind back, you might remember when 12 Thai school children were trapped in a cave. Vernon Unsworth, who was a British cave diver, offered his services to help rescue these children. Elon then called him, and, and I quote, a pedo guy on Twitter. That's Elon Musk, just, just for clarity. Unsworth sued Elon for defamation. So this is all well and good, right? And maybe even slightly amusing. It's probably not that amusing if you're Vernon. No, I, uh, I wouldn't think so. He actually responded by telling Musk, and I quote, to stick his submarine where it hurts. For all of those who are interested, I've attached a link to screenshots of both tweets in the description. They've been taken off Twitter somewhat unsurprisingly. And just before we continue, and there's a bit of a disclaimer, the topic of today's podcast is actually a little bit out of date. We recorded this episode about a month prior to when the piece of legislation that we discuss was actually approved. In that vein as well, we recorded this podcast before Elon Musk had bought Twitter. So that's just a bit of context there to, uh, to bear in mind as well. But to tie this back into the topic of today's podcast, People say mean things to each other online all the time. So what takes the pedo guy tweet in this context from simply being mean to becoming defamatory? For something to be defamatory, it needs to be false. If it's true, it's not defamatory. It also needs to damage your reputation and cause loss. So when you say loss, what do you mean exactly? Loss of earnings is what is usually pertinent when it comes to defamation cases, but in this case, the loss is slightly different and slightly harder to quantify. Unsworth argued that being called a pedo guy had affected his career and his relationships, which is entirely understandable. Mm. This is probably reflective of emotional loss, generally just feeling humiliated. But that on its own is not enough because it's very hard to quantify emotional loss and feelings of humiliation. Yeah, I can imagine. So you're saying essentially that you can't put a price on your feelings? Exactly. And you can't really quantify how much your reputation is worth either. And how much was um, Unsworth claiming in this situation? His emotional damage was worth the princely sum of £145 million. His feelings must be worth far more than mine. Yeah. But unfortunately for Unsworth, he was unsuccessful in his claim. The jury dismissed it and held that the tweet was only a joke. And this might set a worrying precedent, as Mr Unsworth's lawyer commented, it's not a good verdict for society. In many ways, online defamation actions can seem quite David versus Goliath, where individuals with large followings are able to make any statements they choose with very few repercussions. Musk is rich enough to hire the expensive lawyers who were able to argue that this was just a joke, that the tweet had been taken down, and that they'd already apologised and tried to smooth the situation over. But with people who have millions of online followers like Musk, the damage is done surely as soon as the tweet is tweeted, right? Even if it's later taken down. 
shouldn't Twitter itself bear some responsibility for spreading insulting comments like pedo guy? Well, exactly. And that's what we were diving down into today. Surely, in theory, you'd be better off suing Twitter than Musk. Assuming Twitter is in some way responsible and you're able to establish this. And how difficult is it practically to establish that Twitter was responsible? Currently, responsible? currently it's quite difficult, but it might be about to get easier. So I think there's, there's two points there to unpack. The first being why it's difficult now, and the second one being why it will become easier in the future. Let's stick with the first. So why is it difficult right now? Currently, there's quite a complicated framework in place which is undergoing an overhaul at the moment by the European Commission. Currently, online platforms like Twitter are called digital intermediaries. Who calls them that? The e-commerce directive does. What is the e-commerce directive? So this is the current regulatory framework which regulates online platforms. The online platforms benefit from what we call safe harbors. These are exemptions from liability for content posted by other people. There are different types of platforms under the e-commerce directive, but for us, the pertinent one is Article 14, which gives exemptions to hosting services like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. A hosting service stores information that's provided by its users. So does storage just mean that Twitter, when it uploads a tweet on another user's behalf, is then hosting that tweet on their service? Is that right? You're kind of halfway there. We do the uploading ourselves on our phones, but information is hosted and stored by Twitter. Twitter will not be liable for content uploaded by users, even if it's insulting, as long as they don't know about the illegal nature of the activity or the information. And provided that once they do know about the harmful content, they act expeditiously to remove or disable access to it. Essentially, as long as the site doesn't know about the content, they're under no obligation to take it down. So there's no incentive at all for big platforms like Twitter to monitor tweets, as all that does is expose themselves to being sued. Exactly. And we call this the Good Samaritan Paradox. And what's that? If hosts take this responsibility and work towards making their platform safer by taking proactive measures against this harmful content, then they might have assumed too active a role and therefore lose their protection. Meaning, all of a sudden, when Twitter tries to do the right thing, it's liable. So it just avoids this and ignores the problem. Right, okay. And these platforms do generally know that their service is used by users to spread this harmful content. But unless someone reports it, they don't know of specific harmful tweets. Mm -hmm. So for example, Twitter know generally that their platform is used to say mean things, but they might not know about a very, very specific pedo guy tweet. And all these factors combined make suing Twitter with any success at least, fairly difficult. So to sue Twitter for hosting an insulting tweet like pedo guy, you'd have to prove that Twitter itself knew that the tweet existed and did nothing about it. Would it make any difference the fact that Elon Musk is such a prominent figure and he has however many millions of followers on the platform? Yeah, so for example that would be very pertinent when it comes to quantifying loss. If Elon Musk tweets something and it reaches millions of people, that's far more harmful than if I tweet something and it reaches my 50 followers. But it doesn't actually make a difference to whether Twitter knew about that tweet or not. 
it makes it probably more likely to be reported if okay. more people retweet it and more people follow Musk, the information disseminates more quickly, which is part of the problem. And therefore it's probably highlighted to Twitter quicker and can be maybe taken down faster, but that's because the damage also occurs much faster. Right, okay, yeah, sure. If you think of the number of tweets that are uploaded every second, it can, it's impossible for Twitter to monitor all of this content. There's about 6,000 tweets uploaded per second, I think. And there's no way that Twitter can know about all of these, let alone filter the tweets that might in some content be insulting. So by my calculation that I've done just then on a napkin, that makes about 350,000 tweets per minute and 500 million tweets per day. That's like digging a well with a needle. But you mentioned, Eve, that that's the situation now. But earlier you were talking about how it might become easier for Twitter uh, or for users rather to sue Twitter and other platforms going into the future. How is that going to be the case? Well, exactly. 20 years ago when the e-commerce directive was introduced, they never knew that there was going to be the capacity for millions of bits of information all over the internet every second. So what they've had to implement is this new thing called the Digital Services Act, which is about to become law in the European Union. This provides rules for very large online platforms, or what the DSA refers to as VLOPs. Very catchy. Think Facebook and Twitter. And these VLOPs are subject to the full scope of the new Digital Services That's Act. That's such a great name, isn't it? So the DSA tightens the rules around how VLOPs, Facebook and Twitter, need to manage and moderate content on their sites. Yes. One of the fundamental ideas behind the new Digital Services Act is, and I quote, to better protect the fundamental rights of consumers online. Fundamental rights are users' right to freedom of speech on one hand, and on the other, users' right to protect their reputation. Both of these rights are currently granted to everyone by the European Convention on Human Rights, or the ECHR for short. So you've got this ECHR, a piece of paper that contains your rights and the government's obligation to uphold them. So if your fundamental rights are violated online, you should therefore be able to sue Twitter. Yeah, in an ideal universe, you should be able to sue Twitter. But you should also be able to sue Twitter under the e-commerce directive that we spoke about earlier. Right, so the piece of legislation that predates this current or this new Digital Services Act. Yeah, exactly. As undoubtedly, Twitter has played a huge role in the harm that's suffered. The harm doesn't come from the fact that Elon Musk has called you a pedo. If Elon Musk calls you a pedo to a few of his friends in the pub, you're never going to know about it and the damage you suffer is going to be very minimal. But if Musk calls you a pedo to millions of his followers online, then you have a really, really big problem. And essentially, it's Twitter's fault. They have expedited the exponential spread of this information and amplified the damage. So those aforementioned factors are the general justification for being able to sue Twitter rather than suing an individual. Everyone in theory would be better off suing Twitter because Twitter plays an instrumental role in facilitating the harm and Twitter has deeper pockets than individuals. Okay, maybe that doesn't quite apply here because Elon Musk has got limitless money. That's but true. generally, you'd be better off suing the platform than the individual. 
Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, the e-commerce directive, so the piece of legislation that predates the, the Digital Services Act, was drafted in a time where information online wasn't spread in this way. The public sphere, as conceived by Habermas, was far more limited and people had far, a far more restricted method of, of accessing that information. Yeah, the e-commerce directive is a product of 2002, I think. Mm. And in theory, the same harm exists online as they do offline. But 20 years ago, the European Union didn't foresee the way that information would spread in the modern day, that there might be the capacity for millions and millions of tweets a day about every kind of content under the sun. Mm. So realistically, what this means is that VLOPs have acted as a force multiplier in the amount of content and the amount of harm online. And supposedly the Digital Services Act is going to be the way of avoiding this mess. Firstly, the purpose of the modern Digital Services Act is to protect your fundamental rights online. And your fundamental rights are now at greater risk as a result of the platform that Twitter gives its users. So therefore, in theory, you should be able to see Twitter. Yeah, that sounds great. But I'm guessing that it's not that straightforward, right? There is a catch? Yeah, there's always a catch. And here I feel like there are maybe multiple catches. Under the Digital Services Act, even although protections from legal liability are still in place, these protections will be made more transparent. And they don't lose their safe harbours, but they do need to be more proactive about monitoring their content. To throw some jargon at you, VLOPs must introduce reasonable, proportionate, and this is the key one, effective mitigation measures tailored to identified risks. So I'm guessing that these buzzwords that you've just thrown out there are essentially down to interpretation. Yes, and in theory, there are already measures in place to mitigate these identified risks. These measures include content moderation, which we've already spoken about, alongside codes of conduct and terms of service, which are set by the platforms themselves. So terms of service, for example, are really, really important. And the fact that no one reads them is a bit of a travesty and actually impacts their use and their experience of all these platforms online. Yes, and they're going to become increasingly important as well. Everyone signs up to these when they get an account with Twitter or Facebook. And Twitter's terms of service will be drafted by its legal team and it tells you what you can and can't do on their site. Okay. Usually it's the role of lawmakers and spouses to tell us what we can and can't do. But are there any problems that jump out to you here? There should be an alarm bell ringing in your head. Yeah, I mean, I guess the first thing that, that springs to mind is that, that it sounds like the European Commission is offloading all of this responsibility to moderate this content onto the platforms themselves. Shouldn't this actually be the responsibility of governments or our spouses or even probably, you know, ourselves? See, this is a bit of a double-edged sword. VLOPs are responsible for the spread of harmful content online and therefore are quite well-placed to stop it. And VLOPs being very large online, yeah. Facebook and Twitter. Facebook and Twitter. But that's inherently contradictory to the principle that it isn't really the job of private entities to protect fundamental rights. This is the job of national governments. Yeah, so... under and supranational the... bodies as well. True, true. Uh, so under this DSA, the Digital Services Act, VLOPs like Twitter will become the judge, jury and executioner, so to speak, when we talk about protecting freedom of speech online? 
Yes, and it falls to blobs like Twitter and Facebook to determine the limits of freedom of expression by deciding what's contrary to their terms of service. As you might imagine, this is a bit of a slippery slope. And this also happens now. Facebook and Twitter can remove content which breaches their terms of service and their codes of conduct. And in doing so, they don't apply national laws, but rather they imitate the function of national laws. But national laws are drafted and enacted by elected representatives in a democracy. And these laws reflect the will of the people, supposedly in an ideal society. What I'm saying is, I don't suppose there are many democratic elections taking place in Twitter's HQ. No, there's not. And I think that there's two issues here. Private censorship is in no way better than state censorship. And also, lawmakers should not be able to delegate their function as a protector of people's fundamental rights. There is definitely a place for Facebook and Twitter to play a role in moderating content because they're at the heart of the production of that content. Yeah, okay. But it should be up to them to implement and not invent the rules. So Twitter and Facebook don't only enforce the rules, but they make them too the judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah, and it does seem like it might be heading that way, especially when the DSA is enacted. And it might seem like I'm kind of constantly taking a sledgehammer to the DSA here, and it is fundamentally a good policy. The increased reliance on platforms and their terms of service and their codes of conduct is one is only really one branch of a kind of multi-pronged approach Mm -hmm. to protecting these fundamental rights. It's enacting more stringent rules on platforms with great influence and great power. Mm -hmm. And when there is this tripartite clash of rights between, first of all, users who want their freedom of expression protected online, second of all, victims of defamation who want their reputation upheld. Like Vernon Nunsworth. Yeah, exactly, like Vernon Nunsworth. And the third interest in all of this, which is the interest of the Vlops themselves, like Twitter and Facebook. Mm -hmm. And their interest is quite unique. Their success depends on allowing people to say what they want, when they want, but not to the extent that using their platforms is questioned because of all the harm they produce. That's a really delicate balancing act. It really is. And balancing the interests of all these stakeholders seems like an impossible task. I wouldn't have to like to legislate on it, certainly. When the DSA has flaws like the one we were talking about, for example, but it's fundamentally a good thing. So this is the risk that platforms like Twitter and Facebook become de facto censors of online speech. Yeah, exactly. So that's all well and good, and and that summary was really comprehensive and interesting. But could you give everybody listening maybe a Sparknote summary of why the DSA is important to them, specifically? Yeah, of course. The DSA shouldn't really impact you unless you're being horrid to people online. However, you might notice a positive impact if others don't think before they post. That's important because these platforms play a major role in the social and democratic discourse of pretty much every country in the world. And the DSA is a step in the right direction to conferring the appropriate levels of responsibility on these really powerful platforms while ensuring that smaller entrants into the market aren't stifled and that people still get to say what they want. 
Everyone has a vested interest in ensuring that their rights are protected both online and offline. So even if you're not interested in Elon Musk calling someone a pedo, you should still be interested in making sure that your rights are protected everywhere, particularly a forum as expansive and influential and important as the internet. One of the claims made by Musk's lawyer was that freedom of expression allowed Musk to say what he liked. And the internet undoubtedly provides an unparalleled platform for people to do this and exercise their right to freedom of expression. And I think that's also where a lot of the criticism comes from. Mm -hmm. Now that people have got this great platform, the argument kind of goes that by regulating it, you're in some way stifling this lively spirited debate. And that would be all well and good if lively spirited debate was the only thing that ever happened online, but we all know that it's not. And the DSA is not really stifling legitimate debate. All it's doing is striking a better balance between online users' competing rights. Because in this situation, a winner-takes-all approach was never going to work anyway. No one can have their cake and eat it, no matter how rich and how powerful you think you are. I suppose nobody's told Elon that, though. No. Elon lives in his own little bubble. Yeah, he definitely does. Regarding his important and powerfulness. So, so what was the outcome of this case then? Just as we wrap up this episode, did Vernon Unsworth successfully sue him? No, Vernon Unsworth lost his case and that was due to the emphasis that was placed on the importance of freedom of expression. And this is quite, not distinctly American ideology, but freedom of expression is so inherent to the American way of life that the protection for VLOPs over there is more extensive than it is in Europe mm. and hopefully the DSA will be a good way of maintaining that balance and ensuring right. that perhaps platforms don't get the power that they seem to have sometimes in the States. Because there's a bit of a danger isn't there for you know, opening light, opening the doors of liability up really, really wide so that anyone can sue Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whatever, whichever platform, platform of their choice because of something that has, they've seen online that, that has offended them. But by the same token, you can't allow these platforms to continuously hide behind the freedom of expression argument um, to protect, well, their bottom line, essentially. Yeah, exactly. That's... That's totally fair, it's all about balance. And one of the big pushbacks on the Digital Services Act anyway is that it's not the platform who said this mean thing. Fundamentally, there is a break in the chain of who you're suing because you should really only be saying, be able, you should really only be able to sue the person who has actually said the harmful content and that's how traditional defamation law works. But the internet is a very different beast. Mm. And that's what we were talking about earlier. If it were not for the rule of Twitter, hardly any people would be able to see the tweet and well, if Twitter didn't exist, no one would see the tweet. No, of course. And I suppose Elon would be shouting into the void. Yeah. Because he's he... never, ever done that before. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, in this context, he's not because of the number of however many tens of millions of followers or hundreds of millions of followers he has on Twitter. Yeah, it's all about balance and protecting the rights of platforms to disseminate this content and recognising the valuable role that they play while 
also not discouraging platforms from getting involved in the discourse because it opens up this valuable door into a kind of whole worldwide Narnia of global discourse. Sure. Which without them we wouldn't have. So there is inherent value there. It's just about right balancing. So for context for everybody listening, Eve and I actually both wrote our dissertations on this topic. I, I talked about uh, content moderation specifically and I think yours was on mine was on online defamation right so pretty like much the perfect ex- marriage. yeah exactly pretty much exactly what we uh, what we're talking about now um, so that wraps up this episode of the bench if you're interested and want to learn more please check out the hyperlinks that I've included in the description as always I've been your host Henry Dalton and my special guest here today has been Eve Maxwell thank you very much for coming Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. I will be releasing uh, the next episode in a fortnight. But in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next time.